Now we come to the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Last time we concluded the Sermon on the Mount. And it is conceded by friend and enemy alike that there has been given no higher ethic than you have in the Sermon on the Mount. Now the question arises, how would you attain to that high ethic? How would you attain to it? And Matthew brings together here a series of miracles which demonstrate that the one who gave the ethic also has the dynamic for its accomplishment and for carrying it out. Our Lord made it very clear to us who are believers today. He says, "...without me ye can do nothing." I wish we could keep that before us all the time, that you and I, in and of ourselves, are unable to accomplish anything, but it's only as you and I, by the power of the Spirit, through Christ. He works through the Spirit that he sent into the world, and the Spirit of God alone can accomplish. Now, that reveals something that's very important that Matthew's not attempting by any means to give us a biography of the Lord Jesus, nor is he attempting to put in a chronological order the series of events that even took place in his ministry. Now, there's a movement here. If you miss it, I think you miss the gospel altogether. Now, having given the Sermon on the Mount by the king, the king comes down from the mountain And we have a series in this chapter, actually, of six miracles. But the next chapter also has miracles in it, six there. So that we have 12 miracles that he performs that demonstrate the fact that he has the power. And these miracles that are recorded are given in a very definite, organized logical order, but not chronological at all. Matthew's not seeking for that. What he's attempting to do is to give you this movement that reveals the king. The king went to the mountain, enunciated his manifesto, the law of the kingdom. Now this one's able to accomplish it through the citizens of the kingdom. Now the Sermon on the Mount is, I think, here in an abridged edition. We'll have the unabridged when you get to the millennium. And there'll be many more things, I'm sure, that are to be carried out. But this illustrates something. Now, the miracles, we don't have all the miracles that demonstrate His power, but they are given in a very definite way. Let me call your attention to this. First of all, one of the leper, he touches him. And that's human disease at its worst. The centurion's servant. Now, he didn't have any contact with him at all, but he healed him from a distance. Peter's wife's mother, he touches her. And the demons were cast out. He moves into the supernatural realm of the Spirit. He stills the winds and the sea, and that's in the realm of nature, power over natural forces. He casts out demons of the two Gergesenes, and that's supernatural. That is a very difficult case. So he moves in all of these different areas, and it's not in a chronological, but a logical order. And there is this movement, therefore, in Matthew that we need to see. Now, let's look at these miracles that we have recorded here. First of all is the miracle 
of the leper. And I begin reading now at Matthew 8, verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Now, I must call attention to these references as we go through. It's very important, or again, you'll miss Matthew. Great multitudes followed him, not just a few. You see, he is up in Capernaum. That was his headquarters. And this next miracle is there at Capernaum, I'm confident. Of course, it raises the question of just what mountain that he gave the Sermon on the Mount on. And I must confess, I don't know. I read of three different ones. I don't think that's important for us anyway. But when he came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Now is the king who's able to enunciate an ethic up there. Is he able to move with power among humanity? That's very important. When I was in college, I had a roommate. When we had our graduation, we had a speaker that, oh my, he carried us to the clouds telling us what we ought to do, you know. That's generally what a graduation speaker does. And my roommate had a rough year. He was a very attractive fellow, very popular, and he'd gotten in, really, with the wrong crowd. In fact, it took him out of the ministry. He began to drink, and he was in real trouble. I'd talked to him several times, but it did no good at all. Finally, at this graduation, I never shall forget, he came in the room, He dropped down on his bed, just sat down, very dejected. And he looked up at me and he said, Mac, I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I need somebody to tell me how to do it. (laughs) May I say, that's what we need, isn't it? Now, he's enunciated the ethic. Does he have power? Well, he moves down, and this is a tremendous movement. Notice this, verse 2. And behold, there came a leper. That's one of the worst cases, incurable in that day. There came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Now, this leper, when he came to the Lord Jesus, he didn't come and say to him, Will you make me clean? Or are you able to make me clean? He came with faith. The Lord Jesus now has come from the heights. He goes down to the depths. He's confronted by a leper. And the leper puts it on this basis here. He said, Lord, and he recognizes his lordship. And he says to him, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. It's not always his will, friends. But if it's his will, he can do it. And the will of God must come first. Oh, that's so important, and it's so difficult for me. Now, maybe it's easy for you, but I find it difficult to put the will of God first. I put it like this, Lord, will you do this because I want you to do this? That is the basis. This leper says, you will. (laughs) You can. I know you can, but will you? Is it according to your will? That's a little different than we hear it today, is it not? When we hear some people saying that you can demand of the Lord to do certain things, 
and that he will do these things. May I say to you, let him decide it. And that's the only way it's going to be done anyway. Now, notice verse 3, for this is a very wonderful thing. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him. Now, if I had touched a leper, what would have happened? I'd have got leprosy. (laughs) I wouldn't have healed him. But our Lord touched him, saying, listen to him. He responded to that, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, there's something here that I don't want you to miss because it's so important. It says that he touched him. Have you ever stopped to think that this man not only had the physical disease of leprosy, but he had a psychological hang-up that was terrible? I do not know his background, but I imagine that one day he noticed that there was a breaking out in his hand. He'd been out plowing. He came in and showed it to his wife, and his wife said she'd put some ointment on it, maybe some figs that night. Next morning, it was just as red as it could be, and he went out and plowed again. That went on for about a week, and his wife became a little uneasy. She said, you go to the priest. You went to the priest, and he put him up for the 14 days. After 14 days, it had spread. The priest said to him, you have leprosy. He said, well, let me go tell my wife and children goodbye. And he said, I'm sorry, you can't tell them goodbye. You can't put your arm around your wife again. You'll never be able to hold those little ones in your arm again. And when you come near anyone, you must cry out, unclean. And so he saw his children begin to grow up. They would come and leave food at a certain place, and he'd come and get it after they withdrew. He could only see them at a distance. He had been able to touch no one, and no one had been able to touch him. And one day he comes to Jesus and he said, Will you? You can. If you will, you can make me clean. And what did the Lord Jesus do? He touched him. He touched him. My friend, may I say to you that touch was one of the most wonderful things that ever happened to the man. Not only cleansed his leprosy, but it brought him back into the family of mankind and the family of God. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Now in Mark, you find out this man so overjoyed, you can't blame him. He went and just told everybody about it. May I say to you that here's one man who disobeyed Jesus. I'm rather on his side because he did tell everyone. It caused the Lord Jesus to withdraw from Capernaum. Now we're told, verse 5, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. I'm sure the centurion had heard about this. He was a Gentile, a Roman on the outside. He built a synagogue there, we find out. Later, I think Dr. Luke tells us that. And I have been in that old synagogue. I mean, the ruins of it, it's pretty much down today, but the ruins of it is still there. If there's any place where Jesus walked, it would be in that synagogue. But anyway, this centurion came. He'd heard probably about the leper, saying, "'Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, 
grievously tormented. Now, this man was in a very terrible condition. And we're told here, Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. Listen to this centurion. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. Now, this man is a man in a position who recognized authority, this kind of a power, the kind of power that where he wore a Roman uniform and he could say to a soldier, he'd say, look, do this. He did it. Why? The power, which is authority, the tremendous power. Now, he looked at the Lord Jesus and he said, you have that kind of power. He recognized that. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. It is recorded that on two occasions the Lord Jesus Christ marveled. One was at the unbelief of Israel, which we'll see in the Gospel of Mark, the sixth chapter. And then here he marveled at the faith of this Gentile, by the way. Now he says, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting, the east and the west. At the time our Lord said this, your ancestors and mine were in the west. And there'll be some listening to me today, your ancestors were in the east. And he said, this message is going to get out to them where they can trust me and have faith in me. What a tremendous statement. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, each individual has to exercise personal faith in Christ. You can't claim your church membership. or You can't claim the fact that your father and mother were wonderful Christians. Verse 13, And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. The man wasn't there, but he knew the servant was healed because of his faith in the Lord Jesus. He touches the leper, and now at a distance heals this servant. Then we have here Peter's wife's mother, verses 14 and 15. He touched her. She was sick of the fever. He heals her. Notice these three types of disease. One's leprosy, incurable. The other is a palsy, paralysis. Here is a fever, a disease that the only one that is more or less of a temporary disease. She probably would have got over it in time, but he healed her also. The fourth one that's recorded here, it says... When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with demons. Now, that should not be devils. It should be demons. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Two things I should call your attention to here. 
they brought many to him. No isolated case is given. And again, I must say this, that if you watch this gospel very carefully, Matthew will make it clear to you that there were literally thousands of people healed in that day that were walking around. For instance, there was thousands of blind men with their eyes open. There were thousands of those that were crippled, thousands of deaf that had been healed. That's the reason the enemy never questioned whether he had performed the miracle or not. They asked how he did it. That was the important thing. Now, will you notice that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, "...himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses." Isaiah 53, 4, that he's quoting. Now, this verse, by the way, is the verse that is used, I suppose, by modern so-called healers more than any verse. They say that healing is in the atonement, and of course, this is the basis for it. But let's go back to Isaiah and look at this. I do not believe this verse gives sanction for the modern healing movement at all. I don't think that's here. But if you'll notice it very carefully, Isaiah 53, 4. Let me begin there. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Healed of what? Our transgressions and our iniquities. And you say to me, are you sure of that? Oh, I know it, because Peter, in 1 Peter 2.24, he says, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed." Healed of what? Healed of sin. And that is the thing that he's making very clear. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, what? The iniquity of us all. That is what was laid upon it. Now, Isaiah, therefore, is referring to the fact that Christ would grapple with the great fundamental problem of sin. Now, to contend that healing is in the atonement, I think, is beside the point. So is a glorified body in the atonement. But I don't have mine yet. How about you? And a new earth with the curse removed is in the atonement of Christ. It's obvious that we do not have these yet. Now, in this day, when sin and Satan still hold sway, there is no release from sickness as an imperative of the atonement. If that is true, then... Why did Paul urge Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake? Why didn't he tell him to get his healing in the atonement? Why didn't James urge the saints to claim the atonement when he asked them to call in the elders to pray and to use oil, which I believe was healing oil? Why didn't Paul claim healing in the atonement when he mentions the fact that there was given to him a thorn in the flesh. And he says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ 
may rest upon thee. And there are other examples. Paul in Philippians had a regular hospital on his hand. Epaphroditus had been sick there. And he never used the atonement to claim healing in it at all. May I say to you, it's not always his will to heal. But after all, instead of going through an individual down here who claims or doesn't claim he has the power, instead of going to a tent or an auditorium today, why don't you go directly to the great physician and find out if it's his will? I tell you, friends... That's the place to take physical sickness today. And I believe in divine healing, but I believe in going to the head doctor. I believe in taking it to the great physician and put your case before him. And like the leper say, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he gets the glory, you see, and we want him to have that. Now I begin reading today at verse 18. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. I have to continually call your attention to this, great multitudes about him. You see that literally he healed thousands, not just these that are recorded. After all, John, who wrote last, could say many other signs truly did Jesus, which are not written in this book. But the ones that are recorded are for you and me for a very definite purpose. Now, will you notice, as he was getting ready to cross to the other side, I read verse 19 of chapter 8. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. I'm of the opinion that this was a young man. I won't go into detail, but I don't think an old man would have done what this young man did. I think he was there in the crowd, that big crowd, and he was toying with the decision. And to him it was a real decision. Shall I follow this one or shall I not? And he did not know what to do. But he now sees that Jesus is preparing to go to the other side. The boat's getting ready. Disciples are moving down there, and he has to make a decision. So he comes out from the crowd and apparently fell down before him and said, Master, I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. He's made a decision now. The Lord Jesus looked back into the face of this young man and was just as frank and candid with him. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. That, by the way, was a revelation. This young man said, I'll follow you. The Lord Jesus said, have you ever counted the cost? Actually, he's revealing his poverty here. The young man opened his heart, and our Lord opened his heart. That's the way he always does. And he said to the young man, he said, well, it'll cost you something. When we go to a place, there's no reservations made for us at a Holiday Inn or a Howard Johnson or a Hilton Hotel. We just <laughs> don't have a place to stay. The birds of the air, they've got nests. The foxes have holes in the ground or the rocks where they go. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. 
the poverty of the Lord Jesus. And poverty is part of the curse that he bore. I do not know whether the young man followed or not. I've always felt he did. I think when that boat pulled out, there was a young man in that boat who'd made a decision for him. Now, verse 21, "...and another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father." Now, another man had already made the decision, but he says, "...let me first go and bury my father." Now, what do he mean by that? Well, it seems if the old gentleman was dead, they were just getting ready to have the funeral service, that our Lord was a little harsh when he said here in verse 22, "...but Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead." What did he mean by that, and how could the dead bury their dead? Well, Dr. Adam Smith, who was quite an authority in the old days of that land, and he wrote several very helpful books, he tells of an incident of where he wanted an Arab guide, and he was told that where he was going, there was a young man in a certain village that would be an excellent guide. He went up to inquire about him, And he said to the young man, would you be my guide? And the young man said, practically what you have here. He said, I first have to bury my father. And there sat the old gentleman in front of this place where they were, a little hut. There sat the old gentleman as hale and hearty as you please. And yet he said, suffer me to bury my father. Well, what he really meant was, I have to take care of my father until after he dies. He's my responsibility. Now, the Lord Jesus said to him, you follow me and you let someone else take care of him or let him take care of himself. You say that's rather harsh. I don't think so. I think that what he's bringing the young man to is to make a decision. Is he going to put Christ first? And when that young man makes that decision, then the Lord Jesus would probably then say, you go back and take care of your father. I think that's the important thing. I know that there was years ago a young lady that had a father that was quite demanding, old man, and she wanted to go as a missionary. And she gave herself to go as a missionary. She went to the field and did a good work. And then came home and found out that her father absolutely was helpless, no one else to take care of him, and he was decrying the fact that his daughter deserted him, that she really was not a Christian, and all that sort of thing. And the old gentleman had never made a decision for Christ. And so she came home, and she took care of him. And the old man was really shaken by it, and it was during that time that he made a decision for Christ. I'm confident that the Lord Jesus was leading her in all of that. But there was the day at the beginning she had to decide whether she'd go as a missionary, whether she'd put Christ first. And I think that was the case here. Now we are told, verse 23, "...and when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him." Now we have the fifth miracle here, and it hasn't anything to do with healing. It has to do with a physical miracle over nature. And I think that here you see the power of the Lord Jesus demonstrated. Actually, the power that I think Adam had before he lost that dominion. God gave him dominion, we're told. Dominion means you've got a kingdom. And now we see in this the last Adam 
we see it manifested. Now notice this. Behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea. This is no ordinary storm. We saw in the temptation of Jesus that the devil left him for a little season. I think he's back here. Now, I think this storm was actually satanic in its origin, an attempt of Satan to destroy him, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And I think this is one of the most human scenes. He was so weary that even in a storm he could sleep. But there's another side to this. He could sleep in the storm, whereas I can't. I'm a little nervous. Now, will you notice? And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And what little faith they had. Will you notice how he handled this situation? He saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? He rebuked them. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And Dr. Luke puts it, he said to them, Be muzzled, just like dogs on a leash. He put them back with a muzzle on them. These waves, they just smoothed out. Now, these men exhibited very little faith. That may be true. But there came a day when the storms of persecution broke over the bark of their little lives. And I can't find a one of them crying out, Carest thou not that we perish? None of them cried out. Remember the early church, when persecution broke, they didn't say, Lord, remove the persecution. That's what I say today. What they said was, Lord, give us the courage to stand for Jesus. That was the important thing. Now, verse 27, But the men marvel, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, the one who could give the ethic is the one who can also demonstrate the dynamic. Now, we come to the sixth miracle here. And this is a tremendous miracle. It has to do with the casting out of demons. Let me read verse 28. And when he was come to the other side... Now, he's crossed over the Sea of Galilee into the country of the Gergesenes. Now, Gadarenes, it's called. And these people were of the tribe of Gad. You remember the tribe of Gad stayed on the wrong side of Jordan. And what happened to them? They went in the pig business. And they shouldn't have been in the pig business. You see, when you once disobey the Lord, the next step of disobedience is not so difficult. Before long, we are really walking out of the way and his will altogether. Now, there met him two possessed with demons coming out of the tombs exceeding fierce so that no man might pass by that way. These were dangerous men, demon-possessed men. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Now, this opens up a tremendous area and one that, unfortunately, we know so little about. And the word devils, is our translation, should be demons. There's only one devil. There are many demons. It's difficult here for us to understand the import of this miracle and the others where demons are involved. 
I personally think these are the greatest miracles he performed. And it's because of our phenomenal ignorance of demons, the subject just doesn't impress us properly. We today are not impressed by it. I consider it, these miracles, the greatest that he performed. Now, will you notice this, verse 29, "...and behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine." For some reason, they want to be made real. When I say made real, brought into physical reality. They want to be materialized. That is the thing they seem to be concerned about and even satisfied to go in a herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine, and behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. The herd of swine would rather die than have the demons possess them. Mankind's a little different. Many are demon-possessed. Now, I believe that you have a real manifestation of the supernatural during the time of Moses, during the time of Elijah, and during the time of the Lord Jesus. I believe that we're moving now into an orbit where we're seeing more and more manifestation of that which is demonic. And I think there are many evidences of it that are about us today. It's difficult to pinpoint many of these. I think there's always a danger of going overboard and saying they believe so-and-so is demon-possessed. Every now and then a person comes to me and says, oh, I think so-and-so is demon-possessed. Well, I think you and I need to be very careful of that. That's sort of like witch hunting. But there are demon-possessed people. I do not think any child of God could be demon-possessed. And I think a great deal of insanity today. I attempted one time in psychology to major in abnormal psychology. I had a man that worked with these people. He was a medical doctor, by the way, and he was a Christian. And he told me he was fairly sure that a great many of the cases that he had were actually in the realm of the supernatural, that they were demon possession. There's a great deal of evidence, friends, in this sphere. Now they go into the swine, the swine go into the water. I'm of the opinion that the demons did not want to be confined. They knew something about the confinement of certain other demons, the fallen angels, as they're called in the epistle of Jude. They didn't want that. They wanted to be able to materialize themselves here in this world. Now, verse 34, "...and behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they besought him." that he would depart out of their coast. And this is certainly ironical, is it not? They would rather have their pigs than have Jesus. And believe me, friends, that's not peculiar to Gadarenes. There are a great many people today will take pigs instead of him. Now, I'm going to move right on into the ninth chapter because 
we've had six miracles there that demonstrate that he has the dynamic, the power. And chapter 9 continues the same thought. And you have six miracles that are recorded here. One in the realm of nature. He stills the storm, as we've seen back in chapter 8. And the physical ones that perform the healing miracles. And then the supernatural ones that we're going to have here, and that is the raising of the dead, and the spiritual ones are actually the casting out of demons. And you have the supernatural and the spiritual in this chapter. Now, notice verse 1, "...he entered into a ship and passed over, came into his own city." Now, he returned back from the country of the Gadarenes. They didn't want him. And he comes back to Capernaum. Verse 2, "...and behold... They brought to him a man sick of the palsy. We are given details here that you don't have in the Gospel of Mark. And when we get there, I'm going to go into detail relative to this one, because Mark tells us about how he was let down through the roof, you see. But the Lord Jesus here, you will recall, not only healed this man, but he forgave him his sins. And they're both related, as we've seen. And there were there certain of the scribes, and within themselves, they said, this man blasphemed. Well, they also were of the opinion that he couldn't make him walk either. But our Lord asked them the question, whether is it easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk. And they wouldn't answer. But if they had, they'd have to say, well, for us, one is as great as the other. So the Lord Jesus said, you get up and walk. They see that. And that means the one who can make him walk is the one who can forgive his sins. Friends, may I say, that's the condition of performing a miracle and of healing. If you can forgive sin, and you and I can't forgive sin, only the Lord Jesus can do that, and only he can make the man to walk. That is something so important today, and let's don't get in the way of what he does. Let's make sure that he receives the glory. Now, I'm not going into any more detail into this miracle because we deal with it again in detail in the Gospel of Mark. And in verse 9, "...and as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. He saith unto him, Follow me, and he arose and followed him." And even in the brief Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that Matthew made him up dinner. But Matthew doesn't mention that. Matthew invited a lot of his publican friends. He wanted them to know the Lord Jesus also. "...came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples." Now, it was in the home of Matthew. "...and when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners?" You see, they believe that you shouldn't do that sort of thing. And I'm afraid that there are a great many of the saints today that are not at least having the sinners in for dinner. Wouldn't hurt, you see. They are the ones we ought to try to reach, and we ought to have some contact with them. And when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, "...they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. And he's the great physician, you see. He's come to heal him of sin. That's man's basic problem. And that ought to be said to a lot of our little Christian groups 
who have their banquets and what they call their fellowship, and they meet together. And believe me, they don't have anybody in from the outside. If they do, they'll freeze them out, and I'll tell you that. May I say to you, I think some of these so-called Christian groups are sinful in their very existence and in their meeting today. The Lord Jesus said, you don't invite a doctor in for people that are well. But now he says, go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Now, Matthew's back at it again. He's quoting Scripture, Hosea 6, 6. For I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he could include the Pharisees there because they were sinners. In fact, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let me read verse 14. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Now, John, as we've indicated before, was an Old Testament prophet. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He walks out on the page of Scripture, actually out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, to make the announcement, as Malachi had predicted, that the messenger would come to prepare the way. And John says, all I'm doing is just getting the highway ready. He'll be along in a few minutes. And he did come along in a few minutes. Now, the disciples of John, they are a little disturbed. Why is it that the one that John announced isn't quite doing it the way John did it? Now, listen to the Lord Jesus as he answers this. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Now, I think for the church today that fasting has a real value, as we've said. Well, we have no commandment about it at all because we have the presence of Christ and we should rejoice in that. And fasting is actually done as almost an act of mourning and should be done with the thought and idea that we are prostrating ourselves before God, that we are down before Him, and that we are in need of mercy and of help. And that is the thought back of that. Now, listen to the Lord as he explains the change of dispensations from the Old Testament of law to the New Testament of grace. Listen to this. No man putteth a piece of new cloth into an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Now, frankly, what he's saying is simply this. The old covenant, the old dispensation of law, was ending, and he has not come to project it or to continue under that dispensation. Actually, he's come to provide a new garment 
And that new garment happens to be the robe of righteousness that he gives to those that don't do any more than to trust him. The wine skin was the bottle of that day. And you see that when new wine was put in a new wine skin, it would expand. But an old one did reach the place of expansion and wouldn't expand anymore, and it would naturally burst open. The wine would be lost. Now, he said, I haven't come to sew patches on an old garment. I've come to present a new garment. I come now with something altogether new. This is very, very radical. John put it, you will recall, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now we come to the eighth and ninth miracles in this chapter that are actually more or less go along together. This is a tremendous scene. Both of them are miracles of healing, and one of them eventuated in raising the dead. Verse 18, "...while he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler, and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live." Now, she was sick unto death. That is the thing that he's saying. And while he waits there, the servant comes to tell him that the little girl had died. Again, we'll come to this miracle in another gospel, but we'll look at certain things here. And Jesus arose and followed him, so did his disciples. Now, there was a big crowd around him. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. Now, you can't help but notice this. The little girl was 12 years old, and this woman had had this issue of blood 12 years. Actually, here was 12 years of life going out now. The light was going out of her life. And here is 12 years of darkness coming to an end and the lights breaking in. That's what you have right here in contrast. You have night and day. Right here. Now, will you notice verse 21? But she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about when he saw her. He said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Now, Dr. Luke is going to give us this in a great deal of detail. And I'd like to reserve most of my comment when we get there. But you'll recall that actually she touched him. And up to now, the miracles he's performed of healing, when he did come in contact with him, he did the touching. But here now, this woman touched him, and she was healed. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. They actually, at the morning, here they were morning, but when the Lord came and said, she's not dead, she's asleep, well, they laughed. And now will you notice, but when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. Now, this is the first instance of raising the dead that we've had in the Gospels. 
we have three notable incidents, and this is one of them. And it's a very important one, of course. And we'll find that in the Synoptic Gospels that it's given to us three times. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as we say, we'll save it till we get to Luke to go into detail. But this is such a lovely thing, this 12-year-old girl. What he really said to her, if you want our translation of it, the one we have here, and in Luke is a little stilted, what he said to her was, little lamb, wake up. It's a lovely thing. And now we read in verse 26, And the fame hereof went abroad into all that land. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men following him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Now this brings us to the tenth miracle. The eighth one was that little daughter. She was sick at first. Then word was brought, she was dead. Now, the Lord Jesus raises her from the dead. But on the way, this woman with an issue of blood touched him. So you have here eight, nine, and now the tenth miracle. And it's the two blind men following him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. When he was coming to the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were open. And Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. Now, this is another one of these remarkable cases where he said, Don't tell anyone. He'd said it to the leper. Now he says it here. And there are several reasons, but one of them now is made clear here. It caused the crowds to come in on him and actually hindered him in his work. Now, verse 31, "...but they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country." These two blind men just couldn't contain themselves. They told others. Verse 32 brings us now to the eleventh miracle. "...and as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a demon." Now, here you have... Another demon-possessed man. This is the third incident we've had in these two chapters. And when the demon was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, Now notice this. This is important to see. They did not deny that he had caused the blind to see and the crippled to leap and walk. What they said was, he casteth out demons through the prince of the demons. Now notice what our Lord said. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now that gospel of the kingdom was what he had been saying and what in the next chapter in verse 7 he told his disciples to go out, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and to repent. And the gospel of the kingdom is that. After all, he's a king on the way to the cross. And now notice, it says, And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. You see, again and again now, Matthew lets this 
drop, or as it was, he just inserts it, that there were multitudes that were healed in that day. There were thousands, you see. And that's the reason the enemy never questioned whether he performed miracles or not. It was too obvious. Now, I don't want to be ugly, but again, I must call attention to this. A great many people get excited today about the fact that certain ones have a gift of healing. Now, I personally don't think anyone has that gift. I've offered here in Southern California $100 to anyone that would come forward and be able to prove that they were healed by a faith healer. No one yet has called for it. Now, you'd think out of the literally hundreds that are reported in the time of a sensational meeting that there'd be one that would be genuine. And I'll be honest with you, I did expect somebody that really had a psychological cure to come along. And I asked the leader of a certain denomination that's offered $1,000. This man told me that they had had several lawsuits of those that had tried to get it, but no one had ever been able to go into court and prove that they were healed that way. Now, in our Lord's day, there were thousands of people. You'd think there'd be one today, wouldn't you? By the way, I think we ought to be very fair and honest about this and not become sentimental or sensational or shut our eyes to facts. How many do you really know that were really healed by a man or a woman? May I say that Lord Jesus is the great physician, And I believe he can heal. I have great confidence in him, not in man. Even my own medical doctor, and he recognizes it. I recognize he's very limited, (laughs) very limited. Believe me, the Lord Jesus is not. He's the great physician. Take your case to him, and he'll never send you a bill, and he'll get all the credit for it. We want him to have the credit. Now, will you notice, verse 36, "...but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd." And this is such a lovely thing. The note of compassion, which concludes this chapter and section, it's startling, isn't it? You see, God's ideal kings and rulers have all been shepherds. Moses had that training. David had been a shepherd. And the Lord Jesus is the good shepherd. And when we pray the Lord to thrust forth labors into his harvest, pray that he give them the heart of a shepherd. Pray that the Lord will give you a heart of compassion for the lost. Now, let me read these last two verses. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, having said that to them, he sends them forth. And it's always well when you pray for something that you are willing to do it yourself. Because when he asked them to pray, the Lord has sent forth laborers into the harvest. Guess who he sent forth? He sent these very men that were to pray about it. That is very interesting indeed. In fact, very important, I think, for us to see here that he sent them forth into the harvest. An old bishop, the Methodist church, years ago down in Georgia said this. He says, 
when a man prays for a corn crop, the Lord expects him to say amen with a whole. I've always believed that's the way it's to be done. Don't pray for anything unless you are willing to do it yourself. Now, will you notice verse 36 of chapter 9? And I'll have to go back to pick this up. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers of few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he'll send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, that was right before he sent out his apostles to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that is the end of this age. The age of law was coming to an end. Now, harvest time comes after seed had been sown. And for 1,500 years, approximately, under law, the seed had been sown. Now the harvest has come. A new age, a new dispensation is coming in. And the end of one is a harvest. The beginning of the other is the sowing of the seed. But as I want to emphasize, that the end of the age means judgment. And you'll find that in some of the parables that we have here, when he says, let both grow together. And at the time of the harvest, when is the time of the harvest? End of the age. That's judgment, friends. But our business is sowing seed. You see, in the battle of Armageddon, it's considered a great time of harvest. It even is a time of treading the wine press for him. Now, we today are therefore to sow seed. And I rejoice when I read a letter for somebody. They listen for, well, I don't know how long. They listen for over a year, the sowing of the seed. And finally, began to germinate and fructify, and now it's bringing forth fruit. This party has a hunger for the Word of God. This illustrates in a very real way the thing that we're talking about, and I consider that our business today. But now notice where the seed falls. It falls in all kinds of ground, and we really have some seed here. There are really four types of ground, and three-fourths of the seed does not grow it. It dies. Nothing wrong with the seed, but there's a great difficulty with the soil. You can argue election all you want to, but there sure is a whole lot of free will here. It's the condition of the soil that is all important as far as the seed is concerned. Now, will you notice as we come to chapter 10 that the movement continues. The Lord Jesus, now having given the ethic come down from the mountain, demonstrated he had the power in these 12 miracles that are enumerated here. He now commissions the 12 apostles to go to the nation Israel and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this is a definite movement here that we have in the gospel of Matthew. And we see here now that these men are to be sent out, not as forerunners, but they're afterrunners. They are to go out, and they're given credentials by which they can perform miracles. But have you ever noticed John the Baptist never performed a miracle? It's well to note that their title is changed now from disciple to apostle. And it's also interesting to note when we enter this chapter that the number of cults that turn to this chapter to get their authority 
for some peculiar ministry or conduct. You see, the instructions for the Christian are not found in this chapter. The Christian needs to consider the instruction here in light of the circumstances and conditions under which they were given, and we should be able to interpret it accurately. But let's be very clear about our interpretation. Now, let's get into the chapter a little ways. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness, all manner of disease. Now, this was to be their credentials as they went to the nation Israel. And the prophets in the Old Testament said this would be for the nation Israel. This would be the credentials. Now, notice that having given them this power, they are no longer disciples. Listen to this. Verse 2, now the names of the twelve apostles are these. Not twelve disciples now, but they are apostles. The first Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, I have a list of these twelve that are put in my book on Matthew, which might prove very helpful. I also have it repeated in the other of the books we have on the Gospels. Now, will you notice, verse 5, "...these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying..." Now, let's note here this commission. This is not given to you and me. To begin with, he says, "...go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." Now, if you're going to find your instructions for what you are doing, my friend, in this chapter, then you'll have to limit your ministry to Israel. and You better leave wherever you are right now and get over to Israel as quickly as possible, because this is to be given to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, over in Acts 1.8, our commission is beginning at Jerusalem. You are to go to Judea and Samaria. Here they were to keep out of Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. That's not here, you see. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. How was it at hand? In the person of the king. He was in their midst. That is the important thing. And that kingdom today must begin on the inside of you, my friend. You can talk about building a kingdom down here. You don't build a kingdom. It has to come from within. The kingdom of heaven is within you. And that is where it must begin. Now, it's not much in evidence in this world today. Now, he says to them, "...heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely ye have received, freely give." Now, I insist that if you're going to do one of these things, you ought to do all four of them. You ought to be able to cast out demons and raise the dead. And I've said that when any of these who claim to have these gifts will just raise the dead, I'll be around to see them. But until then, I'm very skeptical. I must confess, 
The great physician is the one. Here's a doctor I recommend to you today, my beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this chapter, I should say again, is our Lord, having enunciated the ethic, having demonstrated that he has the dynamic by the miracles he performs. Now he commissions his apostles. They were disciples before. They're now his twelve apostles, and he sends them to the nation Israel, and they are to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now they have the same credentials that he has. That is, they are told to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give. I have not heard any that used verse 8. I never hear them use the next verse. And it all goes together. It's in one package. Listen to this. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses. Now, I suggested some time ago to a faith healer that he go to the hospital. That's where they really needed him. But it's very interesting to me. It has to be in a place where they take an offering. And yet our Lord at this time, he told his own, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses. Somebody says, well, McGee, you mentioned the fact that your radio program has to have support. Yes, and I don't use the other either, by the way. But also, I think we need to put this in its correct context. There came a day. This was temporary during his three-year ministry. There came a day when he said at the end of his ministry, and Luke records it over in the 22nd chapter, verse 35, and listen to this. He said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise is script, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And the apostle says, the servant is worthy of his hire. I believe that. So that my only suggestion is that if you are going to take one of these verses, be sure and take the other verse to go with it. And I do not mean to be rough or rugged, because one of the finest Pentecostal theologians is here in Southern California, and he and I are very good friends, and some of you may be surprised. We have lunch together and discuss these things. We are lots closer together than a great many people think we are. I just mark this down as something for us to pay attention to, you see, and interpret it in the right context. This was temporary. It was for that day. Now, he says in verse 11, "...and into whatsoever city..." Our town you shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till you go thence. And that certainly is not for today. The best place to go is to a motel and not worry people today in the day when people are busy. Some folks still have a prophet's chamber, and I know where many of them are in this country, and they're delightful places. But in this day when people are so busy... When you go through the country, I found out the best thing to do, instead of going into a town and saying, now, who's worthy in this town? Who's your outstanding Christian? Then go over and knock on his door and say, well, look, I'm here. Well, I don't think our Lord 
would say that this is the way to do it today. He is talking to these men under those local circumstances for a three-year period. And I trust that we can interpret this in that type of a context. Now, he says, when ye come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now, he's not talking about the physical house, the people that are there. Verse 14, And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Now, that is not quite our commission today. And I don't think this is quite the attitude of modern missionaries. And certainly when we go out to other places to hold meetings, I've never gone outside of a town and shaken the dust off my feet. Now, I won't say that I haven't felt like it in some places, but I've never done that. And I've felt this was given to these men for that particular time. He says now in verse 15, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And next chapter we're going to find out what really happened to some of those cities. Now we come to verse 16, and he says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Now, having spoken into the local situation, he gives them certain great principles by which they are to go as his witnesses. These principles are good for time and for eternity, and they certainly are good for today. And the child of God today should be wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. And it's dangerous to be one and not the other. I've met some that are wise as a serpent. They're clever, but they're not harmless as doves. They take you, if I may use a common expression. Then there are others that are quite gullible. They're harmless as doves, but they're not wise as serpents. The serpent is dangerous, and a dove is in danger, so that you need to combine both. He says, "...but beware of man, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they'll scourge you in their synagogues." Now, I've never been scourged in a synagogue, but I have in some of our good churches. Verse 18, "...and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them." and the Gentiles. Now, that was to be in that day and those three years, and it certainly happened to those that were his. And it has happened at time to those in the church. Now, he says, "...but when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you." Now, I believe that in that day when those men had no opportunity to prepare at all, when they were arrested and brought up, why, that was the thing that they attempted to do. They just made no preparation. Now, should that apply today? In fact, the matter is, there are a great many people that don't think you ought to prepare a message. I was in seminary with a fellow. He was a little odd in more ways than one, and one of the things... He got up to preach without any preparation. A friend of mine in the seminary, he and I decided one night to go and hear him preach. 
And friends, I want to tell you, you can sure tell he hadn't prepared on the way back this friend of mine who had even more nerve than I got. He said to him, said, did you prepare that message tonight? And he said, of course I didn't. Well, he said, how did you do? Well, he said, the Spirit of God gave it to me. My friend said to him, says, I don't think you ought to blame that message on the Spirit of God. I think today we should prepare. Another friend of mine was at Temple, Texas, years ago when the trains were running, and he had to change trains there on a Sunday morning catch another one. He noticed a black man there that had a long frocktail coat, and he had one too. And he was walking up and down with his notes because he's to preach that Sunday morning. And this man came over to him and said to him, Are you a preacher? He said, Yes. And then my friend said to him, Are you a preacher? He said, Yes. And said to him, said, What are you doing there? And well, he said, I'm going over my notes for my sermon this morning. And this man said, Do you mean to tell me that you prepare your sermon? He said, Yes. He said, Don't you? He said, No. Says I, Just get up and let the Spirit of God speak through me. Well, he says, suppose when you get up immediately that the Spirit of God doesn't give you the message. What do you do then? Oh, he says, I just mess around till he does. And friends, that's good. There are a whole lot of them that just mess around today. Now, this is no excuse for a man not studying today. And it has been misinterpreted by a great many folk. But if we put this back in the local situation, we'll have no problem with it at all. Now, he says... Here in verse 21, "...and the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death." The coming of Christ into the world. Friends, let's face it, it didn't bring unity. It divided man. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us that are saved, it's the power of God. It's divided mankind. It divides a family. When one accepts Christ and the other doesn't, you have a division there. Verse 22, "...and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved." Now, I'll deal with this verse, for it's given again in Matthew 24:13, And in both occasions, here it was for a three-year period, And Matthew 24, it's for the great tribulation period. It couldn't be over seven years. And what he means here, he'll be able to keep them during that period. I'll deal with it when we get to Matthew 24. Now, but when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel, not the cities of the world, but the cities of Israel, till the Son of Man be come. Now, what does he mean by that? Until he is manifested before the nation. It's difficult for us today to conceive of the fact that our Lord covered that nation and there was a real division in it concerning him. He could ask the question, Whom do man say that I, the Son of Man, am? And believe me, everybody had his opinion about him. And today, I still think he's the most controversial person that's ever been in the world. Now, he comes back to the disciple here in verse 24 and gives him general instructions. And again, here are great principles, which you and I can certainly apply, but the direct interpretation were to those men. Now, notice this. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. 
We need to keep in mind we are merely representing the Lord Jesus Christ, and he must come first, or else we're in trouble. Verse 25, and I mean, by the way, in trouble with him. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant is his Lord. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? And you don't worry about what they say about you if you're being faithful to him, because they didn't say nice things about him. Verse 26, Fear them not, therefore, for there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. Friend, your life is going to be turned wrong side out someday, and mine too, every individual, lost and saved for that matter, and we better have the inside of it looking as well as the outside. Now, verse 27, "...what I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops." And you know, I always think of radio as being the best way to preach from the housetops. You remember? They used to put aerials up there. Many of you folk have an aerial out, especially if you have difficulty getting a certain station. You put the aerial up there on the housetop. Well, this is the way we preach from the housetop today. I think it's a good way. Verse 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, fear God. Someone asked Cromwell why he was such a brave man. He said, I've learned that when you fear God, you do not have any man to fear. That's what our Lord is saying here. Verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> he takes care of those little sparrows. You ever watch one of those little old sparrows? Back east, I was in a hotel in downtown area, and I bet there were a thousand little old sparrows out there around the fountain. And I thought, my, there's not a one of them he doesn't know about. It's marvelous, isn't it? But not only that, verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, God loves you. The Lord Jesus loves you more than your mother ever loved you. She never counted your hair, did she? He has. He knows the number. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Just think of that. If he thinks that of a sparrow, you would never get lost, friends, from him. That is, you can be lost, but you never get to the place where he doesn't know where you are. Verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before man, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. I don't want to deny him. I don't want to make a fool of myself because I think that we need to use wisdom wise as a serpent. But I tell you, we don't want to ever deny him. Verse 33, But whosoever shall deny me before man, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. I wish that little verse could get into the United Nations today and into some liberal preacher's thinking. He didn't come to bring peace this time. Sin's still in the world. And long as it's here, God says, There's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now, he says, for I am come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against a mother, daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. How true that's been, 
even now for 1,900 years. It was true then. It's true today. Verse 37, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Unless you have really committed your life to him, paid a price, I wouldn't talk much about my commitment to Christ. I hear a great deal about a commitment to Christ today. I soft-pedal that because I find that Simon Peter and myself never been too good at this type of thing. But thank God he's faithful. That's the wonder of it all. And verse 38, He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me, he's not worthy of me. I wish I could have heard him use that expression, not worthy of me. Many of us are not. But thank God he'll not throw us overboard, but it means that he's not going to use us unless we're really committed to him. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. That's one of the many paradoxes that to follow the Lord Jesus it will bring right into reality. Verse 40, He that receiveth you receiveth me. He that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. But whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Now, you don't do this for salvation. You do this for a reward, you see. That is the important thing. He's talking to those that are his own.